I appreciate Aaron's prayer that uh, people would have open ears and hearts. Uh, about three months ago, we started a series on body and life integrity, and, you know, some may be thinking, why does this guy keep droning on about family stuff? And, and uh, I put kind of a, uh, a summary of the three previous messages, kind of the, the main point on the study sheet. Uh, but just to kind of go back and look at our goal here, what we're trying to do is determine how this body, lion and lamb, can become a more cohesive, interdependent, and effective body to serve the Lord. That's our overall goal. And uh, uh, being a little bit unique body, uh, it's a possibility here. Uh, uh, so please keep that in mind as we go through. Uh, I next want to say quickly uh, to all the jarheads, which is a term that Marines use to affectionately refer to one another, to uh, not check out until you hear me out. Just because the subtitle is Think Like a Girl, that doesn't mean we can't learn something here today. Um, I do, however, want to make, first of all, the startling point that men and women are different, including the way that we think, respectively. More specifically, female and male brains operate completely different. We're literally wired with circuitry that's totally dissimilar. Men tend to think from one side or the other of their brains, while women tend to have and use significantly more connections between the two hemispheres uh, in using those things at the same time. Now, there's quite a bit of research on this, and the differences have significant consequences in how the genders look at the world and situations, and especially matters of relationship and especially, especially in matters of intimacy, and if I haven't been clear, sex. Now that I've got your attention, please consider the following. Men are able to focus on narrow issues and block out unrelated information and distractions. Women tend to see everyday things from a broader, big-picture vantage point. Men can focus on specific tasks for longer periods of time, while women tend to be better multitaskers. And most significantly for today's message, men are, tend to separate information, stimulus, emotions, relationships, and other things into compartments in their brains, while women tend to link everything Together, somebody's sneaking by. Hello. Got me? Okay. All right. Good. I can get a little closer now. Um, now, if, you, if you're 30 or older, you may remember the discussion in the media uh, on compartmentalization when President Clinton got in trouble for his marital infidelities. Uh, even his words became subject to lines of demarcation. 
it literally got down to the question, it depends on what the definition of is is. Does anybody remember that? Well, this compartmentalization went even further in the media and in Congress. The statement was that private conduct was irrelevant to public service. In other words, personal and personal conduct and character according to his defenders did not matter, only his public competence. All this is not to say that male brain compartmentalization is bad, just that it can get us into trouble, particularly with women. Just like female holistic emotional thinking can lead to problems, not to mention leave totally baffled men scratching their heads. A little tip, guys. If she ever says, you just don't get it, don't argue. Because you don't. At least not the way that she does. Uh, The bottom line is, God made us different. Amen? Amen, brother. It is our job as men and women to figure out how we best utilize and harmonize those differences. Now, now that you understand compartmentalization, that thing does not just occur in the male brain and in godless culture. It also occurs in churches and how they function. The tendency is to do personal stuff outside the church building during the week and spiritual stuff and ministry in the church. And ne'er the two shall meet. And in practice, we take, as a church at large, we take a, a rather male-brained, logical, corporate model approach to church functioning. The problem is, we don't see that modeled in Scripture. At the same time in our world, there is more and more of a disconnect between church and everyday life. If you look around, generally what you'll see is, while there's nothing new under the sun, it seems like life is just speeding up and fragmenting with the media and the Internet and all the styles and all the options. You know, on cable TV, you can get, what, a thousand channels. You know, can anybody... It's no wonder we have so, such a high rate of ADD when people just kind of look at one channel after another for five seconds apiece. Uh, Also, there's the transience of life right now. People are moving around all the time. They're changing jobs frequently, not to mention churches. Add to that that the family is falling apart around us. When I grew up, I knew of one other single or one single parent family in the whole neighborhood. Today, on our block, we know of one other family that has a mom, dad, and kids. Now, on the positive side, In this confusing milieu of our culture, the church really is a safe harbor, an oasis, a place where we can go at least once a week to feel safe, protected, comforted, encouraged, recharged for another week out in the savage world. That's all good as far as it goes. However, is that all God expects of the church? Is the ministry of the church to occur only in its confines and when it meets corporately? Is the church a monastery that buries and protects 
its talent, or is it to be a light to the world? Now, you know, to have a scriptural answer, you've got to choose the latter. But if all we have to do is open our eyes to notice that we lack clear evidence that the churches of our nation are consistently functioning as light to the world. Well, what to do? Some have wisely suggested that we reconstitute the family. Well, in that pursuit, whole ministries have sprung up, largely from outside the church. These parachurch ministries meet the needs of their respective target groups. Uh, The names tell us their goals. You know, we're encouraged to focus on the family. Men are encouraged to become promise keepers, and young women are to grow up to become women of virtue. Now, I'm very grateful for, and I utilize the resources these organizations provide, and often these ministries specialize, and they focus the efforts of the members of the body. So this is certainly not a criticism of parachurch ministry. Churches can do and should work in conjunction with those ministries. The existence of these groups, these parachurch groups, is not wrong or sin. However, they do act as a red flag, if not a sign of judgment on the church. As the number and the scope of parachurch organizations expands, the de facto or actual mission of the church actually contracts. Our concept of the contemporary church is largely confined to Sunday morning for doctrinal teaching and fellowship, a.k.a. coffee and donuts, and real-life ministry and relationship take place oftentimes through the experts of those parachurch organizations. On the other hand, church should not become a place where there's all kinds of expectations and obligations that tend to exhaust and burn out and even divide families. So, what is the answer to the dilemma? Well, I would suggest an alternate solution here, uh, and that it's really an issue of lifestyle. Again, we've said this before, this process takes time. If this is something that we as a body wish to do, even if we're fully committed, this is not going to happen overnight. It requires us to rethink our concepts of church and family in order to decompartmentalize. This starts with what we have been encouraging the men to do. Lead our families according to biblical instruction. This requires that we bring more of the traditional church-specific jobs, like training in doctrine and values, into the home. Last fall, our men's advance focused on family worship, and the recent integrated Sunday school was an attempt to urge and model what can happen in the home when dads lead in the Word. This also involves bringing more of the family and life-related struggles and ministry under the guidance of the church. In short, we've got to break down the compartments in order to integrate home and church. To do this, we must think like a girl or connect up the two worlds, home and church, in our minds. When we consider that households 
are really the front lines where we encounter real life, the world's problems and needs, we begin to realize how just important this is. Now, we said before that this approach to church ministry is really the road less traveled. In itself, that fact does not make it the right road. And it may even give you pause considering the apparent success, by that we mean bigger buildings and bigger numbers, uh, of some churches following the corporate business model. I suggest we first consider, is this really a biblical approach? How does the Word describe the church? Is there a significant significant connection between the family and the church in the Word? Is there really any basis for the concept of integrating church and family? When light passes through a prism or a diamond, what you notice is that it produces multicolored rays, each beautiful in their own respect. In the same way, the Bible interprets the church or gives us the church using several diverse, multicolored analogies, each giving a deeper appreciation of the fellowship of believers. If you look in 2 Timothy 2 or Ephesians 6, you see the analogy that the church is an army. The Old Testament wars between God's people and his enemies provide a mental image of what is true for Christians today. Now, this is very different than the jihad of Islam. We are soldiers against an invisible enemy who must rely on the full armor of God. So many Christians have been mobilized in prayer and social and political action. It's quite possible that we would still have slavery and that women would be considered second-class citizens without the involvement of God's army. But for the work of that force Is there really any doubt in your mind that the social evils of child labor, slavery, abortion, pornography, drug abuse, and relationships involving polygamy, groups, incest, and sodomy would not have gained social acceptance by now? The church acts as a moral anchor to function in the real world to hold us to absolute truth. The church was also described as the bride of Christ. In Ephesians 5, they use, the the Bible uses, the marriage relationship that exists between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. And in the Song of Solomon, we're offered an analogy of the deep and intimate relationship God desires with his church. And we should learn from this view about relationships with one another. Finally, in Ephesians 2, we see the concept of God's household. And frankly, this view is not given much thought today. Our difficulty with this view today stems down to the pervasive influence of individualism in the church. Many believers effectively say, sure, I don't have any problem being a member of a church, but what does that have to do with how I live my life? Or... I can be true to God in my own way and on my own. Now, this is really one side in a long-running philosophical debate between competing concepts of submission to a strong church authority on the one hand and individual autonomy and liberty 
on the other. Now, in the next minute, we're going to cover only about 400 years of history, so please hang on and, and listen carefully. The founders of our country came out of a world in which the church was not only very controlling, but tied to the state. Remember, the pilgrims who landed at the Plymouth Rock Colony, uh, they were fleeing from and desired freedom from the dictates of the Church of England. Now, this concept found its way into our, the First Amendment of our Constitution, which states that Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion or the free exercise thereof. And then later, uh, Thomas Jefferson coined the phrase, there shall be a wall of separation between church and state. Now, skipping a little bit, add that the Cultural Revolution, particularly in the 1960s, where we had this anti-establishment movement in which all authority was challenged, and, the, and then a, the general de- degeneration of our culture, with this cocktail of influences, what we end up with at best today uh, is people still going to church buildings where they verbalize and perhaps actually believe the importance of God in their lives just so long as it doesn't affect Monday through Saturday how they live their lives. May I suggest that none of this is biblical. Not the authoritarian church of old Europe, not the extreme individual autonomy of modern-day America, and certainly not the emasculated church that we see today. If you read the Bible and you take notice, what you will find is that the concept and the language of family is so ingrained, it's so much a thread that you cannot take it out without unraveling the whole cloth of the church. We see in Matthew 5 where God is our heavenly Father. He's referred to in Romans as Abba Father, Daddy. Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. We are God's children. We are sons who are adopted. We are joint heirs with Christ. The marital analogy in Ephesians 5 and the Song of Solomon uh, demonstrate the very special and intimate relationship between Christ and the church. An analogy would be God is to the church as the Father is to the family. And we see several examples of this. God is described as our protector in Psalm 121, our provider in Genesis 22, and our leader in Exodus 13. And if we look at the example of the early church, what we see is that they met in different venues, including small family-type settings. In Acts 2, it tells us after Peter's first sermon that they not only continued meeting with one mind in the temple, but also daily breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who would be saved. Further, there are really at least two features of the household which we see reproduced in healthy churches. First one is fellowship. What is that beyond the stuff in the back table? Fellowship of family comes not just from an association or a common interest like a 
social club, but in common origin, natural relationship and affection. A common life pervades the whole. A son or daughter is always a son or daughter, even after they leave and cleave with another individual in marriage. Within the church, we all have a common origin, rebirth in Jesus Christ. We all bear the same name, Christian or Christ follower. We all eat at the same table, the Lord's table. We all eat the same food, the Word of God. We all obey the same loving Father. And then sometimes, spiritual children will leave a local body and start another body to start reproducing through evangelism, hopefully, and training through discipleship. And finally, again, we are all heirs together. In short, these interests create an instinctive affection, making each of us partakers of a common family life. Truly, we are all part of God's household. If you think about it, there is no other institution in which different people are eternally joined together. Many rulers throughout history, including some within our present national government, have tried in vain to divide and silence or even destroy this great household. However, what binds us together is not man-made, but the very blood of God courses through our veins. And we all know that blood is thicker than water. The second feature of family that we see in the church, or should see, is that of discipline. Now, while all people in all households differ, we all exercise and sometimes fail to exercise some sort of discipline with children. And in order to have genuine fellowship, believers have to be willing to give and receive discipline. Discipline is really no fun upon administration. But, as Mike taught last week, it is both necessary and loving. We see in Hebrews 12 that, starting at verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For those fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. As our Heavenly Father disciplines us in love, we are to discipline our children in love, and the church body is to discipline unrepentant members in love. The failure to discipline 
leads to generational cycles of homes and churches in which the blessings of restoration, reconciliation, and forgiveness are simply unknown. Next, I would like to examine a mainstay or maybe even an institution of the modern-day church. My goal here, again, is not to criticize, but to take an honest look at what has happened over time. The concept of children being taught biblical truths in Sunday school is really a relatively new one. The original Sunday schools were actually schools that met on Sunday where poor children could learn to read. The Sunday school movement actually began in Britain in the 1780s, where the Industrial Revolution resulted in many children spending all week working long hours in factories. The Christian philanthropists around that time wanted to free those children from a life of illiteracy. Well into the 19th century, working hours were long. In fact, the first modest legislative restriction on child labor came in 1802, which limited the number of hours a child could work per day to 12. And this limit was not lowered again until 1844. Now, that's just a little nugget that parents can tuck away for the next time kids complain about their chores. Six days shall you work, children. In addition to that, yeah, Saturday was considered part of the work week. The only day left, therefore, was Sunday where the children could learn how to read and hopefully something about the Bible. This movement soon spread to America. Churches caught the vision and energetically began to create Sunday schools. Within decades, the movement had become extremely popular. By the mid-1800s, Sunday school attendance was a near-universal aspect of childhood. And even parents who didn't go to church would insist that their children go to Sunday school. Compulsory attendance in Monday through Friday schools caught on in the late 1800s, but the Sunday school attendance by children continued. However, with the degeneration again of our culture, the the effect of Sunday school has been somewhat diminished. But it is so ingrained in the fabric of our church culture that it is just part of church. Today, the common church experience, frankly, is that everybody comes in the door and then immediately splits up into separate groups. I believe that this is an example of the law of unintended consequences. The original and worthy purpose of Sunday school was to help educate the poor on the only day available for that purpose. These were children who would otherwise get no formal education and and probably no instruction in the Word. And this this evolved into just another experience in which we have compartmentalized all families, thereby further reducing the effect that parents have on their own children. Now, is Sunday school sinful, unbiblical, or harmful? Well, absolutely not. We've already talked about how it is important sometimes to meet as adults and talk about deeper, more mature issues. And I feel it's because we spend a lot of time with our kids at home. I think it's great to have other adults reinforcing the things that we're teaching at home. The problem with Sunday school is not Sunday school. It's The parents. Uh, Let me read to you out of a version that I just made up, which I've dubbed the 
RCV, the Revisionist Contemporary Version of Deuteronomy 6, a well-known passage. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall have the Sunday school teacher impart them diligently to your sons and daughters while you sit in your house watching Oprah. And when you walk by the fairway of the golf course, and when you sit down and when you stand up from your workstations, or you just be hanging. Right? No! No! When parents assume that the Sunday school teacher is responsible to train their children to love and follow God, so the parents don't have to be involved with their children, what has transpired is simply an abdication of responsibility. Sunday school teachers are devoted and sacrificial servants, not masters of the household. That abdication is unbiblical, I believe it is harmful, and I believe it is sinful. In the, in the Marine Corps, we call that a dereliction of duty. And if we see the church, on the other hand, as the extension of the household, where it is clear Parents are the primary agents to educate their children in spiritual maturity. We will avoid that problem, and we will end up a much, much stronger body. Are there exceptions? Like when you get the neighborhood kid whose parents just simply don't go to church to come to church with you? Well, sure, we've had those here. But just... How much of a dent do you think a Sunday school teacher can make with one hour a week? Aren't you expecting a bit much? How does the body of Christ best love that neighborhood child and his household? Well, I would suggest the first option would be to lovingly engage and invite the parents to begin the process of becoming and growing as a child of God themselves, so that they can discover the joy of having a loving family. They can earn the respect of their children. And if that's not possible, and sometimes it's not possible, perhaps by adopting that child into a household as much as possible. I don't know if any of you remember, a couple of years ago, we brought a neighborhood boy Uh, here who had kind of been cast around from family member to family member for, you know, a number of Sundays. And he eventually kind of went on to another household and that sort of thing. We hadn't heard anything from him for a couple of years. And we just got a letter from him saying, you don't know how much I appreciate what you did for me. You know, you just never know what kind of seeds you're going to sow. In a previous teaching, we discussed the concept of household. And basically, a household is a family plus. It includes not just children, but it might be grandchildren, even singles in a church who aren't really connected with a family uh, by relation. The household supports the needs and spiritual growth of the individual so the individual can nurture uh, and, in turn, support the needs and growth of others. In the continuous life cycle, the young child is nurtured and thereby learns to care for others, grows to be a nurturer himself, then grows old and is nurtured again by the younger and stronger nurturers. Much like we have seen openly here at Lion Lamb by Pat Sampson, 
by Larry and Sue and, and by Scott and Barb. Household is, a much, is much more than a structure for carrying out the day-to-day tasks or chores. It is a structure of meaningful relationships in which we carry out responsibilities as a means to an end, that of loving, nurturing, and building multi-generational fruit through relationships. Our biggest impact always throughout the world is through relationships. And what do we see in the Word about relationships? In 1 Peter 2, uh, new believers are babes in Christ, and they need the, the intensive care of a family. In 1 Corinthians 14, immature Christians are, are seen as young children. In 1 Timothy 5, mature men are to be treated as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in Christ. It's all about relationships. And the lifeblood of relationships in households and in churches, frankly, is love. In Matthew 22, there are two great commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And on these two hang everything else. 1 Corinthians 13, you're familiar with that. It tells us that the greatest of all gifts is love. Galatians 5.13, believers are to serve one another through love. And finally, in 1 John 4, we learn that if we say we love God and we do not love our brother, we are lying. What's important for all of us is to realize that we each play a vital role in a household church ministry. Children are part of that ministry. As longtime home educators, Christy and I, like others here, went through the days when we often had to explain why we chose such a strange form of education. And some of the early discussions centered around the issue of socialization. Uh, Thankfully, we were able to point to actual research that found that the more time children spent with parents, surprise, the faster they mature. Better examples mean better character. Children serving within their households can be a tremendous asset as well as a witness. How often do you see it today? In the process, they will mature faster mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Helping out in small, menial tasks develops humility and attention to detail and gives them a vision for what the church is supposed to be. Young people, adults, they're affected in the same way, but being on the threshold of adult life and the real world, they're in even greater need of counsel and an example, which is available through the connectedness of serving in households. At that time of life, tough decisions are being made about vocation and marriage and financial management. So they need as much training and and counsel as they can get. And as they have developed more maturity and they have that all-important and very scarce asset, time, young people can have a tremendous impact while learning from their elders. Finally, old folks. 
We should not be separated by labels, whether it's couples, single, single parents, divorced, widowed, empty nesters, elderly. Household church ministry makes it possible, regardless of our experience, that even those scarred by sin can be accepted and loved. Those further down the path have an invaluable asset, experience, whether good or bad, which can provide counsel to those just stepping into the path. Working within the context of the household is the first and best approach to dealing with the needs of each individual saint. Each of us has something to contribute, and when we are needed, we are part of something bigger than ourselves. Again, I encourage you, if you've got questions about what we've been talking about here, bring them up. During potluck, talk about it. We haven't figured this out yet. We really appreciate any insight we can get into how to integrate our home and our church, integrate our body at the same time. Next time we talk about the household church ministries, we want to delve deeper into the important topic of leadership. But until then, uh, we don't know how this is going to play out in Lion and Lamb exactly, but it is so exciting to look for and discover that path within a body made up of members who truly desire God's best. Lord God, we give all praise to you. We understand, Lord, that you know the future, you know the path, you know where we're going. And a lot of times we don't. We pray, Lord, that you would give us at least the next step, that you would help us to understand how we as a body can love one another more effectively, more meaningfully. How we can reach out and encourage others, rescue the perishing, bring others to a knowledge that will mean not just a much different life here on earth, but an eternity with you. Father, we give all praise to you and ask that you would work in our hearts at this point in time and help us to see what you want us to do next. We give all praise and glory to you. Amen.